Hello and welcome to episode 53 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. Before we start, a big thank you to my latest Patreon supporter this week. That's Jeremy Andrews. Thanks, Jeremy. I really appreciate it. Please enjoy the nine bonus episodes and other exclusive content, all for the price of a dodgy pint of lager a month. Today we head into the tricky world of sexual preferences. What is normal to you and me can be seen as, well, weird, daring, or even just plain wrong to others, and vice versa. It's such a personal thing, and the business of no one else but those involved. But in today's case, it did become the business of others, as we look at a fetish that spiralled dangerously out of control with shocking results. I really hope you enjoy the story, but please do be aware that there is sexual content in today's show. Let's get some context first. On the 14th of March 2003, when this took place, Christina Aguilera was number one with Beautiful. Hey, if you think that's bad, next week it was rock legend Gareth Gates teaming up with the Kumars to butcher Spirit in the Sky. No, really. And Nora Jones was number one in the album charts with Come Away With Me. Top of the US charts was 50 Cent with Inder Club. And in Australia, ex-Neighbours star Delta Goodrum released her debut album Innocent Eyes, which became Australia's monster smash hit of 2003 and included the releases of the new singles Born to Try and Lost Without You. Please do let me know if you have any special recommendations from that great album. In the news this month, the largest coordinated worldwide vigil took place as part of the global protests against the Iraq war with British Cabinet Minister Robin Cook resigning on the matter. The International Criminal Court held its inaugural session in The Hague, and motorcycling legend Barry Sheen died. Then depressingly, on the 20th of March, the Iraq War began. On to today's case. On the 18th of March 2003, BBC News carried a report that police searching for a missing 30-year-old Sussex woman were increasingly concerned for her safety. Jane Longhurst left her home in Shaftesbury Road, Brighton on Friday morning and had not been seen since. Described as white, about 5 foot 5 and slim with brown hair and brown eyes, Sussex police said that her disappearance was very out of character. Her family and friends had no explanation as to why she might have gone missing. Her partner, Malcolm Sentence, with whom she lived in Brighton, said... Relationships with me and her family and friends are absolutely brilliant. She's just a normal, run-of-the-mill, happy, professional, working woman. So it's really distressing and extremely strange. The police investigation ramped up with 45 officers assigned to the inquiry, which they named Operation Keen, and they began looking in detail at Jane's life. Born in Reading, to the west of London, she was a particularly beautiful child, with her mum recalling... She was sweet-natured and awfully pretty. She smiled a lot and was always happy. Jane seemed so content with life that she would often come up and cuddle me. I remember a woman, a stranger, looking at Jane saying, that's the most beautiful baby I've ever seen. I felt so proud. As a teenager, she was responsible and sensible, with a lovely fun side to her nature. She worked hard and devoted herself to music, where she co-led the Reading Youth Orchestra before leaving for Liverpool University and the Guildhall School of Music in London. 
Jane met her first serious boyfriend on a music course in the summer of 1993 and within a year she'd moved to Brighton to live with him. They stayed together until early 1996. He described Jane as a talented, kind, considerate woman and very supportive of her family. After graduating, Jane took her first teaching job at a school in Cambridge and then moved on to Oakmead's Community College in Burgess Hill, where she met fellow teacher Lisa Stevens, who was to remain her best friend. Jane moved to Brighton to become a special needs teacher at Upland School for Children with Learning Difficulties, and it was a job she loved, and one that won her the admiration of colleagues and students. Her dad, Bill, sadly died from Alzheimer's disease in 2000, a year after she had begun a relationship with fellow musician Malcolm Sentence. Their mutual love of music brought them together and both played the viola with the Musicians of All Saints in Lewis, near Brighton. Jane also became active with the Brighton Youth Orchestra. Jane and Malcolm lived together for four years and were discussing moving from their flat in Shaftesbury Road, Brighton, to Bath and travelling through Europe. Like every couple, they had their ups and downs, but to the police, the pair seemed to live a full, happy life together, with lots of socialising and a wide circle of friends. Malcolm told police that the day Jane went missing was just like any other, as he said goodbye to her when he went to work at 6.45 in the morning on Friday the 14th of March. It was Jane's day off and she had nothing out of the ordinary planned as far as he knew. Just a normal day. Jane was last seen that day at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon when two former pupils said they bumped into her in nearby Beaconsfield Road in Brighton, close to her home. Speaking to the public, Detective Chief Inspector Steve Dennis was keeping an open mind when he said, It could be that Jane feels she wanted to start a new life and she has taken the bull by the horns and gone off. Of course, another possibility is that she could have been kidnapped on the street. Police found that the only things missing from her flat were her purse and her mobile phone, and as her phone and cards hadn't been used since her disappearance, they were already certain that she'd been taken against her will. But why? And by whom? And most importantly, was she still alive? Then on 19th of April, a passerby saw flames coming from Woodland at the RSPB reserve in nearby Pulborough and alerted the emergency services. It was unfortunately the moment that Jane's friends and family had been dreading, as police broke the news to them that the fire reported in Pulborough was a box containing the remains of Jane. The post-mortem showed that she'd been strangled, with the ligature that had killed her still in place around her neck. There was an outpouring of grief locally and across the country for the loss of Jane. On the day police told Malcolm that Jane was dead, he was of course utterly devastated, he was broken, and he later committed his innermost feelings to paper. He wrote, I miss Jane every hour of every day and every night that passes. It's heartbreaking when your life turns a corner and new experiences occur and the one person you want to share them with is not there. Jane will always be a very special friend to me. She was loving, warm, beautiful, a fantastic musician and teacher, a great laugh and my best mate. I would happily have spent the rest of my life with her. She would always say, Malk, do you want to get married at some point? And I would reply, yeah, maybe, whenever. She was always open about her feelings. 
She enjoyed the challenge of teaching children and would have loved to have had some of her own. We were going to buy a house to travel with so many plans for the future. For five weeks I was praying she'd be found alive and we could meet again. I miss the great conversations and nights at the pub with friends. I miss walking, driving about, the pillow fights and swimming in the sea. I miss Jane and I just being us, laughing when you're not supposed to during music concerts. Since the day she disappeared I've sent all my love and this won't stop. I want her to know that we all still love her. I believe that wherever she is, she is definitely okay. I'm heartbroken at the tragic loss of a brilliant friend. The 96 pupils at Upland Special School in Brighton, where Jane taught music, returned to class distraught over the loss of their teacher, who was so adored and inspirational. At her funeral, attended by so many people, other pupils left tributes outside the church, with one reading, You are the best, while another said, To the teacher everyone loved, I will always miss you, and will remember you as a happy person. Upland has since launched Jane Longhurst Awards for Youth Performance and Expressive Art to ensure that her memory lives on. Head teacher Paul Atkins said that he hoped Jane's name would eventually become synonymous with excellence and performance rather than tragedy. He said schools tended to move on quickly, but Jane would always remain in their thoughts. And the musicians of All Saints dedicated a performance to their viola player. In a terribly poignant evening, the orchestra seats where Jane and Malcolm should have been sitting were left empty as the hushed audience prayed. Nine days after the body was discovered, on April the 28th, Sussex police announced a 35-year-old man from Hove was charged with murder of the schoolteacher. Graham Coots, a part-time musician and salesman, would appear at Brighton Magistrates the next day. Although delighted that it seemed that police had found the culprit, Jane's family and friends were devastated by this news, as Graham Coots was known to them. He was the partner of Jane's best friend, Lisa Stevens, and Jane and Malcolm knew Graham Coots well as they socialised with him and Lisa regularly. Lisa was particularly distraught not just at losing her friend, but she was pregnant with Coots's twins. But if everybody had known more about the history of Graham Coots, perhaps the news would not have come as quite a shock. Police found that Coots was born in 1968 in Leven in the Fife area of Scotland and attended Glenrose School before his family moved south to the west of England in Cheltenham. There he went to Westwood's Grammar School before studying at the South Cheshire College of Further Education in Crewe in Staffordshire. Academically he wasn't very strong and he tended to have jobs rather than a career, including selling double glazing and also cleaning products. Throughout his early adult life, Coots was pretty promiscuous with a number of one-night stands as he tried to get a break in his dream job as a professional guitarist. He started playing the guitar at 14 and was always in bands, but this couldn't make him the money he needed to sustain the income that he wanted and in 1998 he was forced to take up work as a door-to-door salesman for cleaning products to make enough money to have quality of life. He became well known in pubs and clubs in Brighton and elsewhere in Sussex for playing in a Who cover band called Substitute and in other groups named 17 Black and Big Bang. Nothing unusual in that, as we all know for all the musicians who make the big time, there are plenty of other talented people 
who end up living a similar life to Coots, where although music is their passion, they need another source of income. But the one thing that was different about Coots was his fetish for women's necks that he developed at the age of 15, apparently after watching a film. No doubt there were thousands of people with that same fetish. And listen, what people enjoy in their personal sex lives is no business at all of anyone else. But this fetish did lead to some worrying behaviour. So much so that Coots was referred to consultant psychiatrist Dr Larry Culliford in December 1991. He was aroused by the idea of strangling women, said Dr Culliford. Since the age of 15 these were daily enjoyable thoughts occurring during sexual arousal. And by 21 he was regularly practising asphyxial sex or as he referred to it, breath control sex. Former lovers had seen how sex with Coots had started off as normal, whatever that means, but quickly became adventurous. One former partner said, He would tie me up with a stocking or the cord of a dressing gown. He would like to stroke my neck. He wanted me to put my hands around his neck and press harder and harder, so when it got near the end it would make him pass out. Another said, He put his hands around my neck and he wanted to make me black out, but I never let him. He would put pressure on my windpipe. He would use a stocking. He would tie it around my neck and pull it either end. When asked why she let him practice his desires on her, she said, I was in love with him. I wanted to make him happy. But there were signs of his taste for violence, as one of his former partners said that her being upset or distressed would sexually excite him. My tears and distress seemed to turn him on, she said. He even told her at one time, I get the most awful feelings I'm going to strangle, kill and rape a woman. She also told police that Coots had a large collection of violent pornography, including pornographic photos of naked women in Coots' home, with hand drawings of a hangman's noose around the neck of each girl. By 2003, Coots was living with teacher Lisa Stevens, who had introduced him to her best friend Jane Longhurst and her partner Malcolm. Coots was still selling cleaning products and gigging in local pubs. He and Lisa often socialised with Malcolm and Jane, and Coots and Jane had a shared love of music, although Jane's interest was more classical with the orchestra she played in with Malcolm. Lisa was eight weeks pregnant with twins Gabrielle and Casper when her best friend went missing. She and Coots had successfully conceived twins with fertility treatment after losing a child a year earlier. When Jane disappeared, both were terribly worried. After all, Jane and Malcolm were regular visitors to their flat and Jane often came alone to see Coots to talk about their shared love of music. Lisa wasn't jealous as she liked the fact that he was friendly to her best friend and he had told her that although she was good looking, she really wasn't his type. Jane had said the same to her about Coots. She had no reason to mistrust either of them. As far as she knew, Jane liked Coots and he liked her, just like so many of us with our partner's friends and our friend's partners. The two couples had played tennis together and Coots and Jane had gone swimming together on a number of previous occasions. Just normal life with good friends. Sexually, Lisa and Coots openly discussed his fetish. She never found him aggressive and was open to trying breath control sex after he told her that he'd enjoyed it with other sexual partners. Lisa tried it on six or so occasions when Coots would put his hands around her neck and squeeze, although he never actually cut off her breath totally. 
On one occasion, he used a dressing gown cord, but he didn't fully tighten it. When Lisa told him that it did nothing for her, Coots let it go, and they didn't experiment with this type of sex again. But what Lisa couldn't have known was that Coots was still indulging in this fantasy with pornography, which he was both buying and accessing online. In the weeks before Jane disappeared, Coots spent more than £100 on memberships for websites including Club Dead, Brutal Love and TwistedFiles.com. He sent away for snuff videos titled Psycho Sisters and Murder Times Two, and he searched online for phrases such as Rape Bosnia, Necro Stuff, Strangled Women Videos and Dead Women. He would download images of corpses and rape at all times of the day and night, including one morning when Lisa was downstairs waiting for him to take her on a camping trip. Just the day before Jane disappeared, he'd surfed the net for images of dead and strangled women. And then on the 14th of March 2003, the fantasy ended and the chilling reality began. Jane phoned her friend Lisa to speak with her, but it was Coots who answered the phone. It was Jane's day off, so the pair arranged to go swimming later that day. But this was the time that Coots had been waiting for for such a long time. And after picking her up, he invited Jane in for a cup of tea. And shortly after, Jane was dead. It's unclear exactly where the murder took place, but it was later shown that Jane was lying down and facing Coots as he strangled her. Wrapping a pair of his pregnant girlfriend's tights twice around her neck, Coots knotted the ligature tightly so he could hold it with one hand while masturbating with the other. It is thought that her death rows only excited him further and he pulled the noose still tighter. With no oxygen, Jade died in the flat as Coots was highly aroused, the ultimate pleasure for his fantasies. Once she was dead, Coots was not going to let her go. After all, this is what he had wanted for so long and he was going to treasure it. With a sexual desire for dead bodies... Coots wanted to keep Jane's body for as long as possible and so he placed her lifeless body into a box from his work and threw Jane's clothes on top. He then hid the body in his garden, in his shed, hoping that Lisa wouldn't find it but also with trembling excitement as it was his ultimate fantasy knowing it was there. Meanwhile, as part of their inquiries, the police discovered that Jane had called Coots at 10am on the morning she disappeared It was the last call she made. Police arrived at Coote's house a week later and he happily admitted he'd spoken to Jane. Nothing unusual there, they were friends after all. But he told police that he hadn't met her that day and all the while Jane's dead body was in a cardboard box in his garden in the shed and he callously told police, I just can't understand her disappearance. But the smell of the body was getting stronger by the day and so Coote knew he had to move it. He chose to take it to a local storage facility named Big Yellow Storage and was seen on their CCTV wheeling a large cardboard box into a basement unit. He chose the basement because of the decomposition of the body and the horrible smell, figuring that this basement was cooler than the higher levels of the storage facility. He told staff his name was Paul Kelly and following a split from his girlfriend, he wanted to store a large box of his personal belongings which was sealed with tape. And this is where Jane would lie for over a month. While the body lay in storage, Coots visited the corpse over ten times. Disturbingly, 
it appears that Coote sexually assaulted Jane during these visits. Records taken from his computer show that the use of the internet to visit sites dealing with necrophilia, rape and asphyxia came to a halt during the time he was visiting Jane's naked body at the Big Yellow Storage Company in Brighton. This suggests strongly that Coots was taking some form of sexual pleasure from his trophy. Later, there was also found, along with Jane's belongings, a used condom containing Coots' semen found in the storage unit. Once more, the smell was becoming a problem for Coots, and he knew it was now time to dispose of Jane. The smell was so bad that staff at the unit didn't even show potential new customers the lower floors as they were so embarrassed by it. So after 35 days of storing Jane's body there, on April the 17th, CCTV showed Coots moving the box to his car, returning only briefly to the warehouse to clean up fluid which had dripped from the cardboard container. Coots then moved the body to the RSPB reserve in Polborough, stopping on the way to buy petrol with which to burn Jane's remains and he set fire to the box containing her body. Although Jane could only be identified by her dental records, when staff at Yellow Storage heard the news of the body's discovery, they linked it to the smell in Unit C50 and the suspicious-looking man who left the box there. The police moved quickly to intercept Coots, and when police arrested him on the 25th of April, Coots could only say, I can't talk about it, and he remained silent. But as his trial approached and six months had passed since his arrest, he revealed his defence. He told police that Jane was upset when she arrived at his house, fell into his arms and told him she wanted to try something different sexually. He claimed that they then had consensual breath control sex, where Jane had held his hand to her throat, squeezing it harder. Minutes after tying the tights around her throat, Coots claimed that she suddenly died on his chest. He told police that he was shocked that she died as I've done this a couple of hundred times previously and to this day there's never been an issue of it being unsafe. It's always been safe. He also provided an explanation about why he'd been able to tell police this immediately which was a desperate attempt to protect his unborn twins. He feared that his partner Lisa who gave birth on October 11th would miscarry. He claimed to have panicked after realising that Jane was dead and worried that his girlfriend would lose their unborn twins if she discovered the truth. I equated the truth coming out with the death of my children. I kept seeing two little coffins in my head, he said. If I didn't hold it together, that would be the result. He absolutely denied visiting the corpse for a sexual thrill. There's nothing sexual about a dead body, nothing, Coote said, and the smell was getting worse and worse and worse. There's nothing remotely sexual about that. On this podcast, we've heard some pretty disappointing defence team strategies for trial. And at Coots' trial, his defence team really scraped the barrel, I think. Evidence was given by a defence witness that several years ago, Jane had whispered to a work colleague that a sexual encounter the previous night had involved some kind of stopping breathing. The defence claimed that this was evidence that Jane had previously enjoyed this fetish with another partner, similar to that claimed by Coots. But Jane's final partner Malcolm, and a previous partner, stated that they'd never indulged in erotic asphyxia in their time together. The defence also pushed the line that Coots and Jane had enjoyed consexual sex after she was upset. 
This was just too much for Jane's partner Malcolm, who understandably left the court, raging. This evidence must just have been almost impossible to listen to. The prosecution case that a murder took place, rather than manslaughter, rested on three key issues. Firstly, was it certain that Coots would have known that a serious injury was being incurred in sufficient time to be able to stop and prevent the death? Secondly, did Coots have a motive for causing injury or death? And thirdly, could he be trusted to produce a reliable account of what had happened? The jury at Lewis Crown Court took nine hours of deliberation before unanimously agreeing that Coots was guilty of murder, not manslaughter. Judge Richard Brown sentenced Coots to mandatory life imprisonment and ordered that he must serve a minimum of 30 years. He told Coots, In seeking perverted sexual gratification by way of your sordid and evil fantasies, you have taken her life and devastated the lives of those she loved and of those who loved her. Everything that this court has heard about Jane Longhurst shows her to have been the sort of person whose life enriched all those who came into contact with her. You invited her to your flat. On your account, within a 20-minute time frame from arriving, you were indulging in asphyxia or breath control sex. I have no doubt that the jury was sure it was inconceivable that Jane Longhurst had consented to what you did. Her undoubted love of her partner, her music and her life screamed out of every page of the evidence I've heard in this case. By persisting in your denials, you've put those loved ones through the ordeal of this courtroom and have forced them to relive the last moments of her life and the unbelievable degradation of her body. You have not shown one jot of remorse. Members of Jane's family and friends shouted yes, pervert and pig as Coots was taken down to begin his sentence. Coots continued to appeal his innocence and still does. He hosts a somewhat rambling blog which is still updated today. Earlier this year he made the headlines again saying he wanted to be moved to a prison in Scotland so he could see the snow on the mountains rather than just a wall or a fence. Whatever. But frankly, I've got little interest in his blog or hearing anything else about him. I think it's hard not to feel for Coots' partner Lisa and her two young children. In an interview after the trial, she said, This whole thing has been such a bloody waste. Jane is dead because of sex. Graham got 30 years because of sex. My babies have no father because of sex. I do not support Graham. I do not love him. Our relationship died on the same day as Jane. As soon as the police told me they had evidence linking Graham to the crime, I had no doubts that he killed her. She was my best friend and he was my partner. It doesn't get much worse than that, does it? Our sympathies, of course, also lie with Jane's friends, family and partner Malcolm to lose such a lovely, vibrant and fun person from their lives. What a waste and how unlucky for Jane to come across Coots at that time in her life which gave him the opportunity to act out his depraved fantasy. Jane's mum focused her energies on a campaign to make extreme pornography illegal and in 2008 she finally won her fight to have violent internet pornography outlawed as the Criminal Justice Bill gained royal assent. The law means that the criminal responsibility now shifts from the producer to the consumer of the most violent forms of pornography, including necrophilia, bestiality and violent sexual acts. Jane's mum Liz 
paid tribute to all the people who'd helped her reach the point where her campaign culminated in the new law. She said, Jane would have been gratified, as indeed I am, to think that good has come from such a truly horrendous and evil situation. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. Please head to the Facebook group to talk about this case and any other aspects of UK True Crime. You'll be very welcome. If you'd like to support the show and listen to nine bonus episodes plus other exclusive content, all for just £3 a month, please head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. Until we speak next week, I'm off to discuss filming a trailer for a boating company on the Norfolk Broads. Aha. Have a great one. And remember, stay classy. Cheerio.